um, is gets to be mine. I get to walk you through today, the beginning of a little bit of a story. We're not going to finish this interaction, but there is a, a remarkable story that's going to unfold. Next week we'll we'll see how it finishes. But we have we've had three primary casts of characters in the in First Samuel. First would have been Eli. Eli, kind of a uh, a, a, a priest who had gone awry. He had two sons that were incredibly wicked. Uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't discipline them. So the second person that comes in the scene is Samuel. Samuel, as a prophet, comes in a prophet that is. Uh, so you have a priest, and now you have a prophet in Samuel. Now you're about to have a new person come into play. This new person coming into play is going to be called Saul. He is going to be a, uh, well, you're going to see what's going to happen here in just a second. So, um, uh, so those envelopes, Gabby, uh, don't worry about those. They, they, we got plenty of the boxes there. You're good, Joe. You just hold on to them. You're good. Um, before I start watching you all passing that note all night, all day long. Um, so if you will, pick up with me in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9, and let's go to verse 1, and let's look here. Here we are. Let me pray for me real quick, okay? Jesus, thank you for today. Uh, God, please speak through me. Thanks for the message of the worship. Thanks for, um, just thanks for whatever's going to be said here that you speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for your patience, by the way. I know it's hot. So, there it is. We're trying. We're waiting on a permit. We start building, right? This is not a trick to get you to give to the building campaign, you know? So, first verse, chapter 9. There is a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. The son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bakroth, son of Aphiath, and Benjamite, a man of wealth. Um, I was going to joke and say we're going to spend the next 30 minutes dissecting this verse, but I won't. This is a man who has given a lineage. The reason the lineage is important is you would have been named, you'd have been introduced by your name as being the son of someone. So it would have been given over, this is so-and-so, you're in, his father was so-and-so. The reason you see so much of the lineage here is because that is going to give that is going to give this man, who we're about to learn about, credibility. You ever go to buy a book? You go to buy a book and you open a book, you go to the back cover, you want to see where was the person educated, where they live, that kind of thing. This is a biography on the individual. So, verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a, not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Good grief, he could stop right here, but he goes on from his shoulders upward. He was taller than any of the people. Cameron, can you stand up from now? I'm just joking. So you see this, this picture is going forward of this is a man who's being described in a way as being a remarkable person by sight. And the reason he's doing this is to give you an indicator and give you and I an indicator that this person is just probably leads anywhere he goes, not only based on maybe who he is in his character, but also kind of what he looked like. We judge people. I had a wedding at my house a week ago, and I told some of you this. It was a wedding I wasn't quite prepared for. 215 guests at my house in the backyard. I walk up to the wedding. I kind of, I should have thought about this before, thinking he was a, he's a very well-known model, uh, got saved at the college ministry, baptized, and he married Miss Florida. And sure enough, I walk out there, and I mean, there are you know people in, in shows and movies, and Miss America's there, and Miss everything from South Dakota. And I mean, they were stunning. And I jokingly said to someone, 
I mean, they're all dressed to the hilt. It's an outdoor wedding. They're still like, you know, I said, man, this is, uh, these aren't our kind of, these aren't my kind of people. I mean, like, I, what do I, I mean, you just feel, I mean, I feel like uglier, fatter, everything. I mean, I'm walking out there and I get out there and look around and, and the, as the night went on, folks, I did not have a kind, I could not have had a kinder group of people and godlier group of people. Every one of them kept coming up saying, that was the most Christ-centered message. You have no idea how that honored God. And I'm watching this. I'm thinking, what is going and, and finally, this one lady, stunning, she comes up. She was Miss America, as a matter of fact. She comes up. She says, you don't know. I didn't hear one thing she said now. She, he said, <laughs> she said, you don't know what a great time, you know, and, and, and you know, she mentioned the Lord. And I said, can I tell you and apologize? I am so sorry. Because I judged all of you. I looked at you guys and didn't think. And she said, oh, well, Tori and Chad, they have a unique ability to bring out the best and the godliest in people. And it was, it was just one of those things where I looked at my, my own self and I thought, man, we judge, don't we? You just do. And so here we are. Uh, verse 3. Now the donkeys. This is now gets interesting, right? The donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his to Saul his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through, and get this area, quite a distance here, through the hill of the country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalim, and then they did not find him. But they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, and they didn't find him. But when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and start to become anxious about us. But, he, but then now the servant's going to reply in verse 6. But he said to him, Wait, Saul, behold, there's a man of God in this city. And he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? Now, Let's anchor down on this for a second. You know, at this indication, Saul is a wealthy man. Number one, he has donkeys. I mean, this, these, are your, these are your tractors. These are your trucks. He has many of them. And some of them have gone missing. He now has a servant with him. So he's looking at the servant saying, man, it's been a while. Let's get back. We've got to go. I mean, they've been camping out at night looking for these donkeys. And then so the servant says, no, I've got, I've got a quarter. I, I've got some something on me. You're going to see it in a second. He says, uh, I can, we've got something to take to the man of God. Now, if you're thinking, why? If you ever ask, here's what, now what, so what? When you read scripture, you'd think, why? You've got to go see a man of God. You've got to bring an offering to the guy. Remember, their substance, everything was relied upon by people. They, they, they didn't have belongings. They didn't have... Um, Hey, they didn't have things, so people would have brought these things so they could eat, and and so in this case, the the he simply says, "I I have some." Verse eight. The servant answered Saul again, saying, "Here, I have me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to let to tell us our way." For formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, "Come, let us go to the seer." For today's prophet was called a seer, and Saul said to his servant, "Well said." Come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So they called him a seer. Why did they call him a seer? Because he could very clearly see and talk and interact with the power of God. So he could, he could 
he could interact and he could make recommendations uh, of like, this is what the people are saying, Lord, would you, he, would, he would be an advocate for the people. And so God would speak through the seer, through the prophet. Now, as you, if you look at verse 11, again, always read scripture and have fun reading into it. Don't make this an audio book where a deep voice speaks of the scripture. No, just li- have fun reading this, this scripture. Verse 11, as they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water. I am sure these women really needed water, right? We've just had a description of who and what Saul looked like. The women, oh, we're thirsty. Let's go to the well. You know, so they go to the well and they said, and so he said to them, is the seer here? They answered, well, he is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He's come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up and you'll meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people of Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. That verse you can unpack in a lot of ways. Go back with me to verse 15. Let me see if you can catch this or not. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel. Catching the action, Saul, in his own way, bodily way, is walking. And God is revealing something to Samuel about Saul. Verse 16, go back to verse 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. I want to talk about that in just a second. But jump down to the bottom. And it says, he shall save my people. Whenever you hear Jesus say, or God say in this, my people, talking about Israel, the reason if people ask, why do these things happen to the enemies of Israel? Those are, those are his people. He says, those are my people. And so he says, uh, he's going to save them from the hand of the Philistines. And as you go to learn about Saul, you're going to see this guy took it to the Philistine army. The people wanted a king. This last verse kind of blows my mind. I'm going to tell you why in just a second. The many multifaceted aspects of who God is and our faith. I talked one time to someone who wasn't a believer and they very abruptly said, yeah, I've read the Bible. I don't, I don't, I've, I'm fine. I've done it. I've read it. And I'm thinking... Number one, I'm thinking fleshly. No, you haven't. You know what I mean? I really doubt you have. But secondly, if you did, if you went from beginning to end and you read through it, without the power of the Holy Spirit moving through you as you look at this, you're not getting, you can read all you want. But it doesn't mean you're getting it. There are dead, non-evangelical churches right now reading scripture and they don't get it. So you look at that and you think, wow, it takes all this time to, to be able to grasp my seminary professor, Dr. Inns, had a, had a seminary professor over him, Dr. Pentecost. Dr. Pentecost was at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Pentecost's wife passes away. What does he do? He moves into the dorms at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's in his 90s. The students hear somebody shout kind of excitedly. 
the people, uh, the, some of the students run out, expecting a medical emergency. They look at him. He says, come here, come quick, come quick. They run in there. Here is, here is the, the spiritual teacher and mentor of one of the most spiritually amazing gifted men I know. And this man calls him in, has three open books in a Bible, or two open books in a Bible, and says, look at this. Look at how this correlates to this verse, this verse, and this verse. Look at this. Look what I found. Isn't it? And now, I'm hearing a story. I'm thinking, I'm in seminary, and I'm like, huh, I'm barely making it to my exam. You get a guy in his 90s who has written books on theology who is now just discovering something new. I'm toast, I'm figured. Like, there's no way. And I'm listening to this, but I, I begin to understand the power of the Word of God as living and active. You take all that about how you list, we still learn Scripture, and then you take the power of prayer. Talk about that. Then you take the power of the Holy Spirit. You talk about that. You take the power of the fellowship of, in the, in the of believers when we come together in the presence of the Lord. You talk about that. The sovereignty of God. You talk about that. And then guess what? you get a line like this. That God in his sovereignty says this, For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. What was their cry? Their cry was, his people, they wanted a king. It may not sound like much to you, but if you're a parent, and you have poured into your child... And at 20 years old, that child comes to you and says, I want, a, I want somebody who, I want another family mentor that can pour into me and teach me things. If that, did, if that wouldn't somehow strike your heart, these people have the king of kings. And they want, another, they want a king. Why? What's crazy is this. Not only does God say, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. The intervention. Go back and look at Deuteronomy 17 written hundreds of years before. Deuteronomy 17 says this in, in two particular verses. And he's going to predict this. He says, when you come to the land, this is verse 14, that the Lord your God has given you. He's so, remember, this is God speaking. And possess it. And dwell in it. And then say, I will set a king over me. Like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over, over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among you, your brothers, you shall set as a king over you. He goes on to describe in the rest of that section what a king should look like. But God is telling the leaders of Israel, they're rejoicing. God, you have, look what you've done for us. And he says, but one day you're going to want a king. And the leaders of Israel have to be thinking, what are you, what are you talking about? You, you parted the sea. You freed us from bondage and slavery. But God says, there's going to come a day when you will cry out for a king. And so don't miss it when you go back to 1 Samuel. Don't miss that line when it says, for I have Seen my people, because their cry has come to me. Verse, um, and you look at the beginning of that verse. Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. God is moving. Donna, that means when you're talking about Bryson and about we don't know what's happening and we don't know what's going on. Tomorrow, 
when you said to me, in this adoptive process and what's going on, you said God is in control. You could not have nailed scripture down any better than that. God is in control. Charlotte, God is in control. That you're sitting here is a miracle. And we're not visiting a grave somewhere. Why? Because God knew when you had that heart attack, there would come a day. And so for some of you in pain, Joe and Eva, you look at this and you say simply, there is a tomorrow. Verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Verse 19. This may come as a surprise. As you're reading this, as a thinking individual, you have to be thinking this is a little odd. Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go. It will tell you all that is on your mind. Now, let's stop and think about this. This man... Samuel is the most popular religious man of the day. Saul walks up and says, can you tell me where the seer is? The seer is he, is Samuel. He goes, I'm it. And if you're thinking, how did he not know? I mean, we didn't have, they didn't have visual recognition at the time. And I think nowadays, you, I had somebody come in my house the, a couple weeks ago. I looked at him and said, hey, you're, his name is, Matt, uh, Matt Blair, he's a past, not Matt Blair from Idaho, another Matt. I said, you, I know you. We're Facebook friends. You're a pastor of this church. He says, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I had to creep him out, I guess, right? You know, I'm like, yeah, I know you. Visual recognition. They didn't have that at the time. So giveaway for that. Presidents up through Woodrow Woodrow Wilson, except for like Lincoln probably because of his physical stature, could go shopping on Pennsylvania Avenue unrecognized. Because the visual implant, even up to Truman, he would go walk around and sneak away from security or just have a guy just walk beside him and shop for shoes for his wife. And no one would say anything because the imagery wasn't there. It's not just imagery. It's just I really think, if you want some Jakeology on this one, this is commentary, I think he was probably like some people I know that are just integrity-filled, successful business people, minding their farms, minding their business, who have absolutely no knowledge about church culture. Believe it or not, I could probably walk down my street and say, hey, have you ever heard of Billy Graham? And like, I can guarantee you there are going to be some people like, oh, I heard the name. I think these people are good people. They just don't know these things, these traps. So I really think that was the intent. He walked up, hey, can you tell me where the seer is? I'm him. I'm he. If you know the rest of the story, you know Saul, and I'm not, I'll give it away because it's right there in Scripture. Saul is going to be a spiritual failure in a lot of ways. At this point, this is a man full of integrity. He's a man who, who, who's humble. This is a man who's, who's hardworking. He's not too good to go look for the donkeys. And you wonder where his life went awry. Where did it go? It went somewhere because of this. Because there was never enough. Did you notice that that the whole of Israel wanted a king? Did anybody catch why they wanted a king in Deuteronomy? I don't know if you saw that or not. I didn't point it out. Because the other nations had one. Because the other cool kids on the block had a king. We need a king. 
oh, well, they, they, the Philistines have a king. The Assyrians have a king. These people have a king. These people have a king. Right. We should have a king. Can you imagine now, think of the humility of God. Isn't that interesting to say, the humility of God? Isn't that remarkable? Who could easily just smite someone for saying, you want another king, but to say, I've heard your cry, and I'm going to give you a king. And so he, he chooses, if, in case you're wondering, why didn't he choose a religious guy? Because this is a king. This is not one of the Windsors sitting at Buckingham with regality and, uh, and diplomatic missions. This is a king who's going to conscript men for a standing army. This is a king who has to conquer lands and fight enemies. You don't want a pastor as your commanding general. Well, let's pray about this. Form a committee about it. You, you don't want that. You want, you want to go by the jugular and go by the throat kind of guy. And this is who he's going to get. He wants Saul. He looks at him and says, you want a king... I'm going to appoint you the best king you could ever have. I'm going to give you somebody amazing. And so, Saul, who fits all the mold, walks up to this position. And, just like Israel, he wants everything that's around him. So, when I went to, uh, Ross went to your mother's funeral, and you gave an indication that there would be some number of people there, which is why we prepared so much food. And, Generally speaking, Ross, I'm going to lay in a little secret. As a pastor, when people come to you and say, and I, I've, done, I, you know, I've done a lot of funerals, and people will typically say, there's going to be 500 people, there's going to be 600 people, there's going to be, you know, if it's a celebrity or whatever, cut that number in half. And so when you said the place is going to be full, I remember thinking, I didn't think that way. I've been thinking, oh, food, plates, I don't, you know, telling everybody, you know, let's get this many plates. And then I call Amy, or you were at the funeral as well. I remember calling the others and saying, uh, not to hear panic mode, but this place was packed. The funeral home at 89 years old, packed. Packed. Lydia Fox's mom passes at Christmas. Go to First Baptist Church and the school road in Land Lakes, packed. As you're talking, people wiping away, just crocodile tears. And the comparison that I cannot help but make is how many wealthy funerals I've done of people who've not impacted any individuals at all and there's two or three pews of people and the only thing they talk about is what kind of car they had what kind of boat they had and the only discussion 30 minutes afterwards is you want you know Cabernet or you want Pinot Noir I mean like this is that kind of discussion this is who they serve this is it and I'm looking around thinking how how is it who you tell me Who's a greater success? A woman who's who was not consumed with her 401k in the vault of, of money at the bank and, and the pursuit of everything successful and making sure she had the best car? No. A woman who said, I am going to live selflessly, sacrificially, lovingly, trustingly. And you look at that room and they're looking at a casket and saying, yeah, we know where she is, but I can guarantee you this. There is a void. There is an emptiness. And there is a place that won't be filled again. Things happen in ways you can't imagine and I can't explain. I've done funerals where I've walked up to the... I've been buried a kid three weeks after he got married. In an automobile accident. I'm walking up thinking, how could this happen? Janet, you're grandfather died during your brother's preparation for the wedding. I can tell you what do I tell your mom 
You know what you can say? I don't know why. Ray, when your dad was hurting, watching him suffer in a hospital bed, going, God, you don't have to suffer to die. I don't know why. But in the midst of looking for donkeys, there is a tomorrow. In the midst of looking and trying to find something, God is doing something behind the scenes for you. Who knows if at that wedding you all didn't need your family like never before. I don't know. I don't know. But this is what God does. I would continually tell my college age, we had a Tuesday night during the summer, it was called The Point. So we go out and serve. Remember Gabby? We go out and serve and just go to hospitals, nursing homes, everywhere. And I would tell them, and it wasn't a way to manipulate them, I promise. I, I no, I really mean it, I promise you have to say promise twice as a pastor. I don't believe you. So I, I really promise. So I would tell them, we're going to go do some great things. No matter what service projects we have, they will get done. They will. God will just fill the order. He does. But I will say this. Before every online dating app, the 90% of the weddings that I have done have been over people serving together. At church. And meeting each other at church. So I'm not trying to haunt you, but I'm thinking if you want to go home and watch Gilligan's Island and just stay miserable, you can. Or there's a chance while being, while serving, while just being involved, something may happen. And it generally does. If you find a common thread in the Bible about Scripture, it's really cool. I know you're probably looking at me going, well, Jake, you've never served a day in your life. You're 50 and still single, right? If you look at, if you look at this, if you look at life and you look at in Scripture, where were people found to be used by God? One key word. Ready? wasn't busyness. It was called obedience. They were being obedient. They were doing things and God found them in their obedience and said, I've got something for you. And so, some of you are looking for a donkey right now. You're going through life and just life is just it. And what are you going to do about tomorrow? And so when the country band sings a country song and they say our God's about tomorrow, it's not poetry. It's not a cute line of stanza. It's a holy promise from a living, powerful, holy God. It's incredible. Verse 20. He says, As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them, for they've been found. For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? It is not my clan, the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then have you spoken to me this way? And if you look at that answer, and we end with this verse, that is still a man of humility. He says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of uh, political leaders would have been the tribe of Judah. Yeah, I mean, this is, that's a better tribe. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Why do we have, but he says, really, in a humble way, he doesn't acknowledge that he's wealthy. He has a lot of wealth. Don't be fooled by that. But, he's be, but this is, remember, this is the neighbor who doesn't know Christ, who knows his business. This is the neighbor who, know, who does not know Christ, who knows her, her passion and her profession. That's just their world. 
And this is Saul. This is the man who looks up and says, well, I don't know what I can do. And God says, I'm going to bring you aside and you are going to smite the Philistine army like you've never seen before. But there's going to come a day when you're going to give it all up. You're going to give it up. The crown, the riches, the wealth, the power, the army, everything, you are going to give it up and sell it out. Why? Because you compared yourself to every other person. And you gave up on the dream that you and I once shared. In the early days, Saul is going to be in awe of God. If we're not careful, you and I can be born again believers in Jesus Christ and not have a relationship with Him. And we can talk about, do you know Him? Do you know... I'm still trying to grasp him. But I know him as best as he'll let me and then my obedience will get to know him now. So let me ask you this question. Those of you born again, me, those of you who are saved, those of you who've been dunked, those of you who've been sprinkled, those all of you, do you have a relationship I did not say, do you have a perfect relationship? You know why? There's a couple of, there's a couple of things that encourage me in life. Number one is the life of David. Colin, you remember saying this? Thanks for the life of David because we actually have a shot, right? At making it to heaven. I mean, you know, when you sit there and think, we think we've screwed it up, messed it up. Thank you, Jesus. You saved us on a cross. But then we keep messing up. And then you look at David. How about this? You and I have in our pocket the nation of Israel, his people. The mess up, the, the times they said, God, we, just, we, need, we need a king, we want what we want, and what does God do? He hears their cry. What a powerful thought. And so, how do you bring it home? Born again believer, evangelical Christian, how do you take this message and say, I'm not the nation of Israel. I'm not going to be a king. What am I going to do? What am I going to take from this? And next week we learn the rest of the story of what happens. I would say this. Work first on you. Be selfish. Always be selfish about you and your relationship with him. We are called to be selfless. But if you're pouring out of an empty shell, you're of no use at all. Not only does nobody, nobody else get anything, you're not getting anything. On the body of a, of a dead British World War I soldier that has held this, this uh, journal is an Imperial War Museum in London. It is written by this soldier. When I was young, I wanted to change the world. As I got older, I eventually just wanted to change my country. And then, as life went on, I just eventually wanted to change my family. But now I see clearly that I need to change myself so that I can impact my family and who knows, maybe change a country and the Lord knows one day change a world. Can you imagine if we stop looking to our right and our left and don't compare ourselves? If we remember as a church not to ever compare ourselves. Dave and Susie, I'll tell you, I, you get it from every preacher Anywhere you go, and I'm sure they're being nice and they're being sweet and real when they say this is the sweetest group of people. This is the sweetest group of people you've ever seen. 
I cannot wait to get here to church with you. And not to hear myself babble. You know, not even to hear a great message from Shale. I cannot wait to be around people I feel like I've walked into a family birthday party every week. Anybody else feel that way? It's just, it's, it's unbelievable what God has done. And if we're not careful, one day we'll be sitting in a place where we're not fanning ourselves and we'll be looking around and thinking, well, gee whiz, this place has this. And we'll start comparing ourselves. I'm sure there was a time when they looked back in their silliness and they looked back and said, do you remember when we had nothing? And it was so awesome. There was such a walk. I'm sure there'll be a time as a church we'll look back and think, you remember what it was like sweating in that room? <laughs> it was like trip sticks and all that in the parking lot that people throw out there. I mean, you just remember the times of fighting the traffic, think you're going to get killed at this intersection. And if we're not careful, may we never find ourselves looking back and saying 20 years ago, 10 years ago was my greatest spiritual moment. Grab a hold of it now. God is humble. He hears your cry. And he listens. And he says, sometimes I'll hold back that answer from the prayer. And sometimes I'll give it to you. Because you want it that much. And so when I can't fathom the power of scripture, the power of of the Holy Spirit, the power of being saved by grace. Folks, I cannot figure out for the life of me the power of the will of God, the sovereignty of God, and the absolute success of intervening prayer. And if someone ever tries to explain that for you, run. Run. Because it's not meant for our feeble minds to know other than this. He is a loving, living God. Inclining his ear to us and still hearing our voice. And so when that song Chain Breaker came on and you start breaking those chains, every one of us in here, every one of us is bound by a chain of something. And every one of us Every one of us have had times in our life when we've looked at, at God as the second answer to breaking those chains. I try everything else and anyone else but that. I end with this and I say this. If you are not a believer and you come in here for the first time, maybe second time, whatever, and you're just not a believer, we have a philosophy here that we build the home as the greatest ministry. The person that brought you is probably the best person to talk to about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if not, ask one of us. Ask one of our leaders. We're here to help you. The invitation doesn't necessarily come down this aisle. It goes right to the living room of a home. And secondly, I would say this. If you are a Bible-believing believer, a Christian, and you are somebody who says, I am an evangelical believer, let me just give you some encouragement. When you go home, would you picture a God of humility as well as a God of power and forgiveness and grace. In that relationship, make it a relationship. And see, as much as he called a nation my people, he calls you his. Remember, when they came to find Jesus and they walked in and said, your mother's outside, she's worried. And he said, these are, my, these are my brothers and my sisters right here. That's what he calls us. What a mighty God we serve. Next week we hear the rest of this message. And I'm excited. McMillans, y'all come on up. And let's give them one more round of applause. Thank you.
means a lot y'all are here. I'm going to pray and then uh, then y'all just send us out. Lord, we thank you for today.